All right, Revelation chapter number nine. I want to give you a couple pieces to remember. I'm not big on reviewing before I go to a new sermon because you've already been here, most of you, and you've heard the sermons and, you know, why repeat what we've already said. But I do just want to review a couple things quickly. Uh, these two things could cover literally two whole sermons, but you're smart people. So I think you can handle them in two minutes, all right? Number one, remember this, when you're approaching the book of Revelation, there's a lot of purposes to the book, but one of the purposes is to help you understand spiritual reality. And by spiritual reality, I mean a peek behind the curtain. We operate in our physical world and we use our senses. We touch, we feel, we taste, we hear, we, we do these things. But Revelation will introduce you over and over and over again to a peek behind this curtain that there is an alternate reality that is, some would argue, more real than our reality that exists that we need to pay attention to. So, for example, in chapter number one, you see this vision of Jesus. And this Jesus through chapter one and two and three is with his church, right? Isn't it a true statement that Jesus is with his church, this church this morning? Yes. Can I touch him? No. Can I... Can I Taste, feel, can I, can I sense him in a physical way? No, but there's a spiritual reality there that Jesus is with his church. You start to move on into chapters four and five and you see heaven and that everything worship, worships Jesus. And you see that there is a heaven that is real. You get on to chapters six and seven and you start to see these, these sealed judgments, but you start to learn that this, this world is hostile to God's people. And they are hurting them and persecuting them. And the people of God are crying out and saying, God, give us a hand here. You know, give us an assist. What's going on? Like, 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 come, smite these people. Do something. And you find out that God is with his church even in the pain and even in the hurt. But then you get to chapters 8 and chapters 9. And what you find is that God was not looking the other way while his people suffered. That nothing got by him. That the prayers of God's people do not go in one ear and out the other. That God hears and God responds to those prayers and he responds to them in judgment and in justice. And I mention all of this to you because you will begin to see another layer of the book of Revelation that starts to confuse people or scare people or befuddle people, which is this, this layer of spiritual reality that is the demonic realm. And we haven't really touched on that at all through Revelation, but we're going to turn a corner and you'll see a lot of that over the upcoming chapters. You'll see a lot of that this morning and don't let that scare you necessarily. Don't, let, don't read it as though it's sci-fi. It's just as true as heaven. It's just as true as all the other realities that we're seeing and you get a peek behind the curtain here as well. But oftentimes what I find Christians do is that they treat spiritual reality is like a buffet. And they say, you know what? The idea of God, who is spirit, who is not bound to a physical body, I'll take that one. The, the idea of heaven, right? Body in the ground and the immaterial me is in heaven with God. And my loved ones are there. I like that one. Angels, cool, I'll sign off on that. But then you start to get the demons. You start to get the evil angels. And all of a sudden people run scared and they don't want to think about it. And in Revelation 9, this reality stares you in the face, and you have to understand that it's just as true as any of the other chapters we've read thus far. The second thing I want to remind you of is that there are three sets of judgments in Revelation, broadly speaking. Each set kind of has a different staple or mainstay. 
We've already covered the seals. That was really about this world that is ruined by man. Those seals are about what we already see in seed form blossoming in scarier ways. More earthquakes, more famine, more disease, those sorts of things. When you get to the trumpets, the mainstay of the trumpets is actually the world being ruled by Satan. And you start to look at the demonic. And if you were here last week, you may think to yourself, well, we covered four of the trumpets last week and I don't remember anything about Satan. Well, we're, we're getting to it today. And this is kind of the, the staple of these trumpet judgments. And eventually we'll get to the vials, which is the world restored by God and him putting things back together. But let us begin today to cover chapter number nine and what is known as the fifth and sixth trumpet or the first and second woe. So here we go, chapter eight, verse 13. Last verse of chapter eight is where I wanna pick it up. We left it there last week and then chapter nine. Verse 13 of chapter eight said, and I beheld, this is after the four trumpets of judgment sounded and those four trumpets contained huge ecological damage, damage to the trees, the grass, the ocean, the river, uh, uh, darkness, these sorts of things happened. And of course, economic damage would happen after that. So after these four trumpets, I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven and he said with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth. Why? Well, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, the three trumpets left, which are yet to sound. So simply put, you get to the end of four trumpets and it's been dark and, and hard. And the angel comes and says, FYI, the worst is yet to come. Woe, woe, woe is a call of distress. It's a mayday, mayday, mayday to earth's inhabitants. This is getting uglier before it gets prettier. And so that is how we set the stage entering into chapter nine is to take a dark setting and make it even darker and heavier. So here we are, chapter nine, verse one, the fifth trumpet and the first woe sounds, here it is. The fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven under the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now let me stop and explain a couple things first. An angel sounds the fifth trumpet, and what happens? Star falls from heaven, and then this he gets a key to a bottomless pit. So first of all, who's he? Anytime you see a pronoun, you want to find the antecedent that it corresponds with. I know some of you hated English class, and you're like, what did you just say? Okay, let me put it simply. He corresponds with star, or you say this way, the star is a him. When it says a star is falling from heaven, the he lets you know this wasn't actually a star, this was a personage. There is some sort of person coming from heaven with a key to a bottomless pit. So who is this person? We don't know. People speculate, some even speculate that perhaps that this is the devil himself. I, I don't really lean that way. Uh, I think that it's just another angel that God is sending on a mission or on a task. And the task is to take this key and to go unlock this bottomless pit. So what is the bottomless pit? And this is important because you'll see the bottomless pit nine times. Uh, the Greek root word here is abyss. It's translated a number of different ways in the English language, but you see the abyss of the bottomless pit nine times in the Bible. 
Seven are in Revelation. This is the first one and you'll get, you'll get six more. You'll find that the beast that we're introduced to later on comes out of this bottomless pit. You'll find that Satan is locked up in this bottomless pit for a, a fixed period of time towards the end of Revelation. You would actually find this alluded to in Luke where Jesus finds a demon-possessed man and the demons identify themselves as legion because they are many. And Jesus is going to take them out of this man and they plead with Jesus and they say, Jesus, please don't send us to the abyss. And Jesus in mercy sends them into a herd of swine and those swine get scared and they run off uh, the edge and they fall in the ocean and they drown and it causes a whole commotion in the city as you might imagine. But the angels knew of this place and said, don't send us there. Every time you see a bottomless pit in the Bible, it is in reference to demonic forces going in or out. You could probably think of this as prison for uh, the devils. Now, what would one do to be locked up versus someone else who is not? I don't know all the answers to that, but I know this much, that this is the place that is some sort of, of holding tank of sorts for uh, evil angels. And here's what's happened. In case you think I made that up, like it will make sense as you keep reading, like demons are gonna come out of this thing. Verse number two, this one with the key, he opens the pit. Oh, what, what's going to happen? Confetti cannons, you know? Is this going to be happy? No, 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 it's whoa. This, this is not good. Here's what happens. There arose a smoke out of the pit as of a smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Probably the closest thing we could compare this to would be like a volcano erupting with all the smoke and steam and ash. And if you're in anywhere close proximity to this volcano, it will go dark on you. It will completely cover and it will black out the sun. Verse three, there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. We talked about these people previously, the people that God sealed to protect them and preserve them. Preserve them from what? This stuff. Verse number five, and to them, these locusts, it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Pastor, what did we just read? I, that's, I warned you, okay? <laughs> I warned you, you start to, you're going, going to get into demonic forces and stuff that people want to just toss aside as, as sci-fi or explain it away in, in modern terminology, and that, that's unhealthy. Don't do that. There's a plague of locusts that come. If this verbiage sounds similar or familiar, it should. It's actually not that new. It, it has kind of allusions to Old Testament plagues, right? You remember the locusts that came on Egypt. But that was very traditional. Locusts that ate up the crops and took their supplies away. This is very non-traditional. What are described as locusts are told, don't touch the crops. Touch the people that are not the people of God and inflict pain is what happens. Tremendous pain comes because of what they're doing. How does all this work? Do the locusts just spread out and they're all over the planet? Do they move as one swarm and kind of travel around? I don't know. I don't know, but I know this much. This is demonic in nature. 
This is a fixed period of time. It is five months. And this is real, real bad because verse number six will tell you very frankly, in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. They shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. Now that conveys despair of the darkest possible hue. That death is playing hide and seek. That a lot of people are saying, I wish it would just end. I wish the pain would be done. Just kill me. You say, that is heavy. That is intense. That is seemingly sad. I know. But this is the first woe that comes. Why is this coming? Once again, we'll look at that in a little bit and we'll start to understand some of that, but it continues on in verse number seven. The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. Their heads were as it were crowns like gold. Their faces as the face of men. They had hair as the hair of women and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. They had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings is the sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. They had tails like unto scorpions and there were stings in their tails and power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them. He's the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon and in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon, which means destruction. Now, it's not entirely difficult to take this and to start to use these pictures as potentially pictures of modern warfare. And many have done that with the text. I said, well, look at this, you know, their wings sound like horses trampling. Maybe that's like the wings of a helicopter and in their tail is sting. Maybe that's a missile coming out of the back of the helicopter, but it doesn't kill people, it just hurts them. Maybe this is like a nerve agent or some sort of chemical warfare. And people can, can do this stuff with the text all day. I would advise against that. Can I say for certain that this isn't describing some sort of version of, of modern warfare? I don't know that I can say for certain, but I, I dare say that that doesn't make sense of the demonic forces. It doesn't make sense of being led by this demon whose, whose nickname is destruction. It doesn't really make sense of the heartbeat of the text to try to make it all modern for us. That's, that's way too neat and clean and tricky, honestly. So what is all this? And what are all these descriptions? I don't know that I have all the answers there, but I know this much. This is yet another judgment of God that is intensifying in nature. It is becoming more difficult and more painful for the world to endure this. And it is a trumpet, it is a woe, and it is not pretty for the people of earth. That in chapter eight, verse 13, when the angel said, May Day to the people of earth, he wasn't pulling a prank. It wasn't April Fool's Day. He meant it. And in verse number 12, the sixth trumpet sounds, and now the second woe happens. Verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, there come two more woes hereafter, which, you know, in case you were bad at math, <laughs> when there's three and one is past, two are left, you know? Verse 13, the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, this voice in heaven saying, to the sixth angel, which had a trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound on the great river Euphrates. Now the river Euphrates is a river, a real river. Really, you go back to the beginning of, of creation in the Bible, you'll find that the Euphrates is mentioned there as a landmark through the Fertile Crescent and through the cradle of civilization. 
And that has continued. You find that river all over the place. It's still a river today. You, you can go there. Starts in Turkey, runs down through the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East, runs through Syria, through Iran, enters into the Persian Gulf. And people live on it. They use it for commute, for fishing, for sustenance, for water. Uh, Iraq even built a dam on the river to produce an energy supply for them. But what the people who live there don't know is that somewhere in this body of water, there are four evil angels that are waiting to be loosed. And it says, it says this in verse number 15, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared, it's very specific, for an hour a day, a month, a year to slay the third part of men. So what that, what that says is the net result of these demonic forces being loosed is a third of humanity dies. See, I, I see what you're saying when you said like it was gonna get worse. Like the, the pain and the, the anguish and the judgments were going to get worse, yeah. And it says very specifically that this was set aside or appointed to a year, a month, a day, and an hour. That there is an hour on God's calendar when this will happen. In the same way that you would go to the dentist this week and schedule your next cleaning exam six months later, and they say, hey, I'll see you on September the 6th of 2023 at 10 a.m. All right, see you then. God has that September the 6th, 2023, 10 a.m., that year, month, day, hour scheduled. That this sixth trumpet will happen, and these are loose, and it tells you very plainly, a third of the people die. Now, it begins to elaborate on what this means that a third of the people die. Verse number 16, the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. Where would the army come from? I don't know exactly. It wasn't in the text before this, but presumably the angels somehow, whether this is some sort of uh, army that's supernatural in nature, whether this is leading an army of men, I don't know for sure. But well, there's this army of 200 million. Now, I could imagine being in the first century and like, I don't know if there were 200 million people on the planet reading this. And now we fast forward a few years and China has reported that they have a 200 million man army. This is not inconceivable. And here is this army, verse number 17, the same sort of description for the locusts now applies to this army <clears throat> that is, Maybe you could relate it to modern warfare, but it becomes really tricky and dicey to do so. Thus I saw in the horses in a vision, and then that sat on them, verse 17, they had breastplates of fire and jacinth and brimstone. The heads of the horses were as heads of lions. Out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Is that a tank? You know, this strong armored thing that is shooting fire out of its mouth? By these three was the third part of men killed by fire, by smoke, by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their powers in their mouth and in their tails, their tails were likened to serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. I'm not going to spend all day speculating on what exactly that means, but I once again would just caution you to understand the supernatural reality of what has been conveyed throughout the entirety of Revelation and not to suddenly make exceptions for it because it's uncomfortable for you in chapter number nine. This is communicating that at the very least, these two trumpets and these two woes are some total, God extending the leash on 
evil angels and demonic forces and saying, as you were previously restrained, I am no longer restraining you, have at it. That's the big picture of what this is communicating. And that's a bad day. That's, that's bad news for the people of earth as the angel said it was. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, let me get to verse 20 and 21 and, and hopefully we'll, we'll try to understand it. All of this is intensifying. All of this is becoming more painful. All of this is becoming more severe judgment at the very least. And sometimes when the world caves in on you, it causes you to look up and to be drawn to God. Many of you would know this from personal experience, that you hit bottom and because you hit bottom, you finally looked up and you stopped looking in and you stopped looking around, but you looked up to God when you hit rock bottom. This is something that is, that is true for many people, even in the Bible, like a Jonah. <clears throat> a Jonah gets a clear word from God. God comes to Jonah in his word and says, Jonah, do this. And Jonah says, nah, man. And Jonah rebels and he runs, right? And God doesn't just let him go. God starts to judge Jonah and he sends a storm to a ship and Jonah doesn't respond to that storm. Jonah, instead of saying, well, this is of the Lord and I need to respond and God, I'm sorry, I repent, have it your way. Jonah says, throw me overboard and I'll die before I obey. That's what he says effectively. My rebellion is so severe that I will die in these waters before I choose to obey God. But he doesn't anticipate that God will have a little tomb prepared for Jonah and that he will essentially be swallowed up by a well. And then not having death as he had planned on, having further judgment entombed in this fish, Jonah finally hits bottom and he cries to the Lord. And what does Jonah 2.2 say? It says, I cried, why? By reason of my affliction to the Lord. The affliction that God put on me caused me to cry out to him and he heard me. And when I cried out to God, you better know, I was in the belly of hell when I cried. It was affliction, it was hell on earth, it was intense, it was not what I wanted. This is circumstantial brokenness. And in my distress, I called out to God. And this is a story for a lot of people that God uses pain as a megaphone to yell into your life. That he's trying to get your attention and he's trying to speak to you through his word. And he's trying to say, don't do that. And he says, don't do that. And you say, that's exactly what I'm doing. Hey, don't go there. That's exactly where I'm going. Hey, stay, stay away from her. She's exactly the person I want to spend a lot of time with every chance that I get. Hey, trust me with your finances. Be generous. Don't touch my money. That we all have these moments where God is after us and we respond in rebellion and we sin. And what does God do? God doesn't just leave us to our own devices. That actually is one of the most painful things he can do when God stops pursuing you and stops chastising you and stops speaking into your life through pain because you won't listen to him. Those are the worst moments. You do not want that. 
God continues to pursue and he takes that pain and uses it as a way to scream in your life more loudly and more clearly. And oftentimes in our affliction, we cry out to him, right? This is, this is our story. We think we're slick. We think we're cute. We think we got away with it. We think that we escaped. And all of a sudden, the chickens come home to roost, don't they? And the consequences come and the pain comes and the punishment comes. And now I thought I could get away with it, but I'm sitting in the back of the police car. I thought I could get away with it, but I'm staring at a pregnancy test that I do not want to be positive in, and it is. I thought I could get away with it, but I'm making the drive home from work. And it's normally an eight minute drive, but this one feels like eternity because I know they just found out. And I know when I walk through that door that they are going to look at me and they are going to cry and they're going to be angry and they, they know what I have done and I have been discovered and now I have to sit in this pain and in this misery. I never thought mom would find out. I never thought dad would find out, but they found out. And now it's painful. It's those moments that are a grace and are a gift. They hurt and they stink, and I would never want you to sin and have punishment. But when you sin and have punishment, oftentimes it turns you, by reason of your distress, you call out to God. But not always. Sometimes the pain keeps coming and coming and wave after wave after wave, and the sun starts beating down on you, and God makes it real hot, but instead of melting the ice, he hardens the clay. Sometimes the same pain comes and people respond in an entirely different way. And that is what happens in verse number 20. Seals, trumpets, woes, the megaphone of God calling out to the world and what happens? The rest of men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils nor idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can't see nor hear nor walk. These are crimes against God. False worship. The next series is crimes against man, ultimately against God, but against man. Nor did they repent of their murder, of their sorceries, of their fornication, of their thefts. The pain came, the trumpets came, the woes came. What are the trumpets trying to say? The trumpets are trying to say, repent, repent, repent. And what do they do? They don't melt, they harden. And there is no repentance. Now a quick note, and I'll apply this, and I almost hate to make this note, but I have been sent enough videos and enough articles by you and others that I must note it. Over the last few years, people have picked up on the reality that verse number 21, these things that people would not repent of was murder, nor of their, what's the next one they wouldn't repent of? Sorceries. And people have pointed out, the Greek, you know what the Greek word for sorcery is? Pharmakia. It's where we get our word pharmacy. When it says sorcery, maybe it should say pharmacy. Look, I found the COVID vaccine right here in Revelation. And you laugh, but I get the videos and I get the articles and I get the messages, okay? 
When it says sorcery, really the word is pharmacy. When it says pharmacy, that means Pfizer. When Pfizer, that means Fauci and the COVID vaccine. This is what the problem was right here all along. Big pharma is the problem. And Revelation 9.21 says this. Okay, no, it doesn't. That would be like me going to verse number one and saying, look at verse number one of chapter nine. A star fell from heaven, right? Is that what it says? The star You know what the Greek word for star is? Aster. It's where we get our word. Astrology. Astronomy. Astronaut. When it says a a star fell from heaven, that is God taking all the space stations of the world and saying, get out of my heavens. And he is sending all of the space stations back to earth and God is smiting the astronauts. Now, if I told you that, you would or should raise an eyebrow and say, "Eh, I'm not sure about that, buddy. It seems like a stretch. And you would be right. But it's the same game that people want to play with other portions of Revelation. So please, if, if you're prone to be drawn into that, uh, resist. That is not what it's communicating. What it's communicating is that the world does not like God's people and they get after them and they, they kill them and they brutalize them and they hurt them. We saw that in previous chapters. And God takes notice of this. God does not let this go unpunished. God hears the cries of his people. God responds in judgment. And this judgment is dark. It's not pretty. It is heavy. It is intense. But at the end of it, there is still an extended hand from God where God is saying to the world, repent. And they refuse. Turn to me. I don't want to. And while there is a message for those that are without Christ, I do think there's a a broad application for those that are with Christ. If you are responding to God in rebellion and God is after you and you're running, let me put it simply, stop running. It doesn't end well if you won't respond. If you won't take his word, And you won't take his people, you won't take the pastors and the parents and the people speaking into your life and trying to help you see it. And then he starts putting pain on you. Respond to that. Don't numb your conscience and act like it doesn't exist. Don't begin to, as Romans 1 would say, suppress the evidence and act like there is no God. Don't try escape mechanisms to get away from it. If you're running... Respond to that. Take the hand. Don't slap his hand away. Don't continue in your rebellion. Repent. Tell the Lord, I'm done. Even if it is in your affliction, cry out to him and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm not just feeling bad in my conscience. I am going to repent and I'm going to turn away from this behavior that is wrong and sinful. I'm gonna call it what it is. I'm gonna turn from it. I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to respond in obedience and in faith and in repentance. This is actually a, a mechanism that we as Christians have to employ over and over and over and over again because even those of us that are redeemed, we still have rebellious little hearts that want to run away from God. Big picture, sometimes in small ways. Sometimes it's, I'll give you 90% God, but this 10%, do not touch it, off limits. I will not obey you there. But even those small areas, God won't let that stand. 
And when he comes, whether it is in chastisement and discipline to a son or whether it is in wrath to an unbelieving world, the, the same principle applies, repent. So what do the trumpets say to us if you leave Revelation 8 and Revelation chapter number nine? Well, on the one hand, they say an encouraging note to God's people. God doesn't look the other way when we suffer. God hears our prayers. He hears our cries. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's a comforting thought. On the other hand, it says to those that are without Christ, if you do not respond in repentance, now this is not marketable, but this is true. If you don't respond in repentance, you are in terrible danger. And that message of the Bible is very clear. That if you die without Christ, that is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And you don't want to dig your heels in. You don't want to continue to be stubborn. Let go. Stop running. Say yes. And respond in repentance and in faith. And there's good news when you re leave Revelation 8 9. Bad news that they don't respond. But good news that his hand is out. I'll leave you with the words of an old hymn written by Charles Wesley that is exactly on this. And we don't have a lot of hymns anymore that talk about repentance and turning to God and having him forgive us of, of our sins like today. But this hymn communicates this in such a powerful way. Oh, Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. Yet once again, I seek your face. Open your arms and take me in. And I love this line. And freely my backslidings heal and love this faithless sinner still. You know the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for your truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. I don't know if you're a runner this morning, but if you are, Read those words today. Maybe pray those words today and say, God, I am responding. I am repenting. I'm turning to you.